Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Joining me this week is the distinctly unfeudal, but impeccably, even tokenistically, northern Lucy Dallas, singer of songs, dreamer of Disney dreams, editor of arts coverage. Lucy, hello. Hello, what an extraordinary um, introduction. Yeah, I thought, it, I thought it, was verg- it was verging on the... It was the nicest one yet. Yeah, I bardic. <laughs> yeah. I, felt, I felt it was verging on. I don't on. think of myself as tokenistically northern, but no, if other but you people are just do, northern. there's nothing I can do This is the that. podcast of flat vowels, though. If people yeah. aren't allowed... Nobody says bath here. No one, path. My kids, no, it's, it's awful now. I, was, I had a conversation with my daughter just this weekend, and she why do you say bath, daddy? It's when they go to school, yeah. they and hear said, other well, Because it is bath. As you know, it isn't. And then we had, a, honestly, a very childish argument where she said, yes, it is. I said, no, it isn't. Brilliant. Repeatedly. Well done. And then we never settled anything. <laughs> so that's the quality of the debate that goes on in my house. Uh, remember, if you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions and type pod one in the offer code section. You can get six issues for six pounds. Coming up on the show this week, the TLS's very own commissioning editor, Maren Meinhardt, has written a book about 18th century Prussian polymath Alexander von Humboldt, a pioneer of scientific exploration and description. We have an extract in the paper and Marin joins us in the studio to give us his life story. Julian Barnes has a new novel out, his 13th, full of musings about love. Is it any good? Is he any good? Lucy Dallas, of course, not a famous reader of words. I'm going to interject because I I was told I was allowed to interject. Exactly, free speech. Not a famous reader of words, that one I do mind. Right, it's born on the fact that you don't read the newspaper. I read. I read. Bits I read of the my paper. bits. Yeah, of you the read paper. exactly, and that, also lots of other things, and and also the paper. I would say reading your own bits of the paper is verging on the narcissistic. Well, well I don't write them. No, but it's still. Anyway, Lucy Dallas, not known for her reading of the newspaper, has read the book. You have, haven't you? I have. Uh, And it's reviewed by TLS contributing editor Ruth Skirr, and they will both tell us all about it. And not for the first time, I'll be the most ignorant person in the room because I have not read it yet. And we have an American feel elsewhere in the paper. Jenny Hendricks has reviewed a book about the naughty 1990s, which accompanies a lovely piece by Joyce Chaplin on that misleading cultural tendency of American niceness. Joyce will be on the line from the US to tell us more. Alexander von Humboldt was a type of 18th century Renaissance man, a scientist and traveller who endlessly explored and experimented upon the expanses of the known world, and even sought to provide a unified theory of how the universe worked. He influenced Charles Darwin, himself a grubby-fingered and tireless experimenter, and was widely praised by his peers, including Schiller and Goethe, and even Thomas Jefferson. But how much of him remains today? How much do you know about this Humboldt? Perhaps like me, you had a sense of a famous German thinker, were a bit confused temporarily by a totally unrelated novel called Humboldt's Gift by Saul Bellow. And that was about that. Well, Maren Meinhard has been writing a book about Humboldt for absolutely yonks. 
it's fair to say. It's called A Longing for Wide and Unknown Things and is, if the extract is anything to go by in this week's paper, a fascinating and wonderfully written thing itself. Marin joins Lucy and me in the studio. Marin, hello. Hello. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Where and why did you get interested in... Is he obscure? Is it fair to say an obscure 18th century figure, Humboldt, or is he not uh, that obscure? Maybe not quite. I mean, I've had long-standing interest in German romanticism because um, how can you not be excited by German romanticism? <laughs> I mean, There's let, plenty of people who aren't, Marin. There's plenty of people who aren't. Well, I am, because, you know, people led <laughs> yeah, exactly. exciting, daring lives, went on to die young, even though Humboldt didn't do that. Um, and he lived at a time, I suppose, where you could genuinely discover things. You know, you could test out theories. and. Well, it was difficult to, you know, get to the other side of the world, yes. I was just really interested in this group of um, early German romantics who led interesting, exciting lives where women were getting involved in politics or, you know, all of a sudden, which hadn't happened before, got divorced without worrying what society might think. And Humboldt was right in the middle of this very heady movement. Um, so it was a time of freedom, you think? It was I a think time so, yeah. The uh, French Revolution had, Revolution had just sort of shown, you know, that an established order didn't have to be taken for granted at all. And also in Germany, you know, things were starting to move. And usually the attention is more on the writer, such as Novalis, um, Friedrich and Wilhelm Schlegel or Rahel Levin, whereas Humboldt's contribution is right in the centre of this, only from the scientific side. So he's more of a scientist. I mean, he, he wrote a lot, obviously, but he, he's, he's a sort of figure of scientific exploration. Yes, but I think his motivation is essentially romantic. He wanted to find something that wasn't quite defined, but which was very much in um, opposition to what he knew and which was in a way open-ended. So he, so he saw the sort of mystery of the world around him and wanted to what, pay tribute to it or to define it or to understand it or all of those things. I think he wanted to see where um, the borders or the, um, or the boundaries of the known were and just to see how much could be found out and if it was possible to go beyond that what was already known. And I think it carried over in his private life. He wasn't sort of happy with, you know, the t- traditional models of living or traditional ways of seeing the world, but he wanted to see things that were not defined yet and that were still open for exploration. Well, actually, we join, in our extract, we join his story in 1793. He's 24. And he seems to have fallen in love with a soldier called Reinhard van Heften. Why was this doomed? What was what was the problem with him falling in love with this soldier? Well, mostly that um, Reinhard von Heften was not free to have a relationship. He was already at that time um, in a relationship with a woman, Christiane von Waldenfels, whom he had made pregnant and whom he planned on marrying. Um, this was slightly complicated by the fact that Christiane at the time was still married to somebody else. And Humboldt knew this. He Humboldt knew, th- knew this. In fact, even Heften drew on Humboldt to help him disentangle the situation so that he could go on to marry this woman. So from the outset, the setup for Humboldt was not auspicious. So he was basically a man in love with another man who was in the process of getting romantically entangled with another woman. And he woman. was even helping him, um, basically working against his own desires, yes. Um, was, it, was, it, was it kind of openly stated, do you think, ever that he was in love with him? Because I know at those times there's a lot of professions of friendship, I know, genuine I friendship, where people would difficult. say, well, I love you and you're very close to my heart, things that we would be much, language that we would be much less likely to use this nowadays. This high-drum romantic language is yeah. quite treacherous and you think um, they do stuff like, you know, they want to press people to their bosom um, and never leave them and you know, be with them all the time. Here's a letter and, yeah. he sent saying, everybody knows that I live under one roof with Lieutenant Hefton, who is always around... And he, he talks about, he does talk in terms of love. Do you think that's more than platonic love? Once the two got married, he wrote him a very, very tortured letter um, saying how cut up he was by the whole thing and how he would always love Heffen. I think that very much goes beyond what was, you know, mm. romantic, general... Kind of friendship and brotherhood. Yes, yeah. yes, way beyond that. Then also you sort of ask yourself, um, it doesn't prove anything, of course, because there is this sort of sentimental language. On the other hand, if there had been a relationship, I mean, what other way would it have... Um, shown itself or expressed itself because they weren't allowed to. Yes, I mean you can't prove anything, but no, you. Sure, sure. So no. was Humboldt? Is it? I mean, it's, it's anachronistic, but w- would it be fair to say Humboldt was a was 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 gay? He was. I think he was mostly gay, but then there's this whole thing about um, a reluctance in Humboldt, and I think that's a reluctance that also boils down to the romantic thinking of boiling um, a reluctance to um, tie yourself down to established or even sort of finished and defined ways of okay. thinking. Mm. So him sort of saying he was gay or he was straight is, I think, slightly missing the point. I think he was mainly just following his feelings and following that what he thought was true and what his senses told him because I think he was carried by this romantic belief that what his senses strongly told him would have to be true and couldn't be 
wrong. And did that it's, search... Which, it's this, very, very modern, sorry. This, it is kind it's of very... It's incredibly it is, modern it thing to say, modern. I don't want to be pinned down. Yeah. It's I don't a, want to be binary about things. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very, anti-binary, yeah. Yeah, it did sort of strike me as such. It's obviously also easy to impose things on Humboldt, but he did look to me that way. Possibly. And does this lead him to happiness, Marion? Because it, it clearly is never going to uh, lead him to happiness with uh, uh, Van Heften, because Heften's no. off with his wife. No, Where does he Heften, end up? I think, was not a particularly sympathetic character. Everybody... His friends generally, Humboldt's friends generally took a dim view of Heffen. Can I read one quote yeah, of um, Humboldt's sister-in-law? There was a plan that they would all go to Italy together. Humboldt was um, in one carriage, um, his brother and his family in the other carriage. But it didn't really work out that way. So, But Caroline was quite taken aback about how much space the Heftons were taking up and how much luggage they were carrying with them. She complained... The Heftons, even though they've only got one child fewer, hardly any servants and three times as much space, have stuffed their carriage full with so much luggage that there just simply wasn't any room for Alexander. The classic rule in life is never go on holiday with another family. <laughs> yeah, you I think? I, I just, Absolutely. I just that's think that's the main thing I just to draw from Maren's book. I know, I, I'm sure no, that's I, not why you wrote it, Maren. No, it's, we're moving slightly away no, from Maren's book. Been, but yeah, I, I, do really been, want, I do really want to make that point absolutely clear. Only misery can go when there's... You had some bad experiences. No, I just refuse to take this. I've done it twice. Have you? And it was lovely. Okay. There we go. I think... What about you, Lucy? I've done it and it's been very successful. I bet you're not doing it again, are you? I don't know. No. Who knows what the future holds? No, I don't want to be well, pinned I, down. I, I want to hear like Humboldt. You like Humboldt. I want to hear, so Humboldt had no shot with Hefton. Does he end up finding happiness? Well, at the very end, and I think um, in the way, in a way, um, his um, big journey is part of that. I think he did find happiness, and I hope he did. I think his journey gave him a sense of him being able to be the person he wanted to be. He'd found a place where I think he never felt he quite belonged in Germany, Prussia of the time. And he felt immediately at home in the tropics. There were pointers to that all the time. He kept overemphasizing the fact, the fact he was at pains to say how much he thrived in the tropics, how he was never ill, even though he was ill fairly frequently in the tropics. But he kept pointing out how healthy he was, how fat he was, how brilliant everything was. And when he got home, I think he was free to lead a happier life. We don't quite know how his life ended, but he certainly did not feel the need to take up a traditional mode of life. He lived very happily. But does that mean alone or did he have... Well, there's varying male companions over a long period of time. Some were collaborators, some seemed a little bit closer. We can't know because, you know, the tracks are um, obscured by romantic writing of the time. But it's hard not to see a pattern. At some point he comes to London where Wilhelm is stationed and Wilhelm complains that um, he had a room prepared but he had to have his friend with him because you always have to have, have, have a friend with them okay. carried about. So um, they weren't going in the house, they were going to stay somewhere else. So that definitely, definitely is a pattern. However, at the end of his life, he lived in a very odd but happy-seeming arrangement with his servant, the servant's wife, and five children. And there is this slightly scandalous rumour that came up fairly early on already. And if you look closely, you can find it everywhere, that at least two of the children were actually Humboldt's children. Ah. And I think it's important to um, not read too much into this. Maybe they were his children, maybe they were, they were not. But he definitely lived with them much closer than he d- lived with his own family, like his brother's family. Yeah. He also left all his worldly goods to the servant. And intriguingly, in his will, it says to his servant and all the many children um, that have been sired under my roof. Which is ambiguous. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. And I mean, yes, Deliberately ambiguous, Especially feel. at a time where he had absolutely no need to be ambiguous. He could have just yeah. said everything. Ciphered. His family disapproved very heavily of that whole thing. It's a fascinating, um, it's a fascinating sort of social life. But he was, of course, a, a scientist. What sort of experiments is he doing uh, at this time? And the, the thing I took most from from your piece was the frog abuse that was going on. Yes, I uh, didn't by Humboldt. He, he, he was, you don't want to be a frog in the 18th that. century. You don't want to be a frog near Humboldt. If, if Humboldt's life. walking near the pond and, yeah. and he eyes you up beadily, you want you want to worry. Why is yes. that, Marin? What's 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 I he doing? Sorry about that. I mean, I I do like frogs. Well, it's not your fault, Marin. <laughs> <laughs> They're soft, gentle things. We yeah. want to hurt them. Yeah. Um, so, what was he doing to them? Well, um, the whole thing was galvanism, and Galvani um, discovered that if you, by chance, that if you had a bit of severed frog recently dead, and by chance it came in contact with a bit of metal, the frog leg twitched, and that was obviously hugely exciting to people at the time because there was an idea that you know the very essence of life that made a dead-seeming muscle, a frog with his head cut off, 
look like it was alive again yeah. and full of movement make like 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 that might be the very force of life like you put, could put your very hands on the force of life or you know metal tweezery it's thing. the thinking behind Frankenstein isn't it in a way this yeah absolutely I mean it's the same period that's English romanticism here's the German version yeah. yes so Goethe was fascinated by that as well so um, Humboldt experimented um, in all sorts of variations he even put different bits of animal fiber together even the mouse tail sort of scraped off the hairs um, assiduously to make sure it worked and it worked you could, you could have I think three bits of animal um, fiber and it still would um, transmit the nervous impulse um, and so what did he put there's a moment in, in this passage where he, he's got frogs on his shoulders hasn't he a prepared I raised two blisters on the deltoid muscles of my right and left shoulder. A prepared frog rested on the left wound. The one on the right was covered with zinc. The frog jumped in spite of being eight inches away from the metal the moment it was linked to the zinc by means of some silver wire. So he's prodding electricity in himself with yes. a frog on his shoulder. I mean, I couldn't really help thinking that happened very much at the time that this guy Hefton got married and he seemed to be a little bit into self-flagellation. Sort of punishing himself. It seemed a little bit like self-harm too, but maybe, maybe it was not. I mean, probably it was all of these things. But another thing about Humboldt is um, sort of a wider point about the pain that um, he used his own body as the um, thing to inform him. Um, his own body was the ultimate measurement of something like if pain was, if you could pe fe pe feel pain was, you know, a limit that couldn't be argued with. It was, you know, definitely showed to a phenomenon that was definitely there. Mm. And it was so. It was. It was certain. I suppose the certainty. Of yes, pain and I think again, there's a romantic thing of putting your, yourself into the experimental mm. setup of not pretending that you can be completely objective, but that your own senses tell you something that is essential. And is that? Do you think why he was an explorer? Because he had to. He had to go to these places himself and feel what they were like and see what they were like and try and climb up the mountain. I do think so. I yeah. think he always put himself in the path of the experiment of danger. Mm. Um, for example, climbing up a volcano only stopped when he was on the point of fainting, or you know, it actually did faint. A similar thing happened when he, before in his career as a mining inspector, he tried out a mining lamp, and he was only really quite sure that he was in the presence of a dangerous gas when he passed out. Right, that would, that would be... Oh, he wasn't sure at that stage, but he, <laughs> yeah, luckily, that luckily somebody it, yeah. heard and pulled him out by his feet, but yeah. he felt it was quite important to really put yourself in the way. Well, it's admirable oh, in a way. Experience. It's, 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 it's just it's such a different approach than, than what we take now because scientists are sort of thought of as objective and actually but the possible must have felt yeah but the possible the must have felt because you're pushing he must have felt maybe scientists still do that but the time so little was known I suppose that he must have constantly felt he was pushing at the forefront of things he was sort of finding out the secrets of life I think he must yes and I think it must have been hugely exciting the galvanic experiments yes and I think maybe putting himself right where the action was must have been extra exciting to be part of the experiment. If a little painful. So, so uh, uh, very quickly, what is his legacy then scientifically, Maren? What, 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 is, what exists in the world because of, because of Humboldt? What, what, what's he left us with? Well, I mean, mostly when people think of Humboldt now, they think of things like Humboldt penguins, Humboldt squids, the Humboldt current, which is now called the Peru current. Um, so, he, so things were named after him? Yes, a lot of things. But um, it's difficult to really get a grasp of a scientific contribution because he had an interest in so many different things. It's a sort of sprawling body of knowledge. Yeah. It's very difficult to define or demarcate. So he was interested in hugely diverse things such as, you know, just to pick a few things at random, such as um, the nervous fiber of an electric eel or the distribution of plants across different climate zones or even the bioluminescence of jellyfish or the composition of falling stars. He sounds a bit like Darwin. That sort of sense of a con well, he, constant, constantly just wanting to find stuff out about a wide variety of things. Yes, I think he had the idea that if he uh, gathered as many possible disparate facts as he possibly could, and I think he thought there was an um, obligation to do that, in the end it would all fit together or, you know, everything would point. The more he would get, the more it would point to an underlying plan, and that is his idea of the, the unity of, yes, that's right, yes. And did he? Did he find did he find a unifying theory? I don't think he did. And I think it's also part of romanticism that um, if you're a German romantic, you don't really think that anything is ever finished. I mean, he had 89 years to finish his big book and he didn't manage. The most interesting bit, the culmination that he wanted to write about the human, about human races and humanity as, you know, the crowning glory of his work. He never even finished that. There's loads of abandoned, abandoned projects. And I think to him, the idea of something that many facts pointed to was always more interesting and enticing than a finished, closed body of knowledge. So it's kind of potential and... Yeah, better to travel than to arrive. <laughs>
Yeah, I would better travel, hopefully, yes. Yes, exactly. Marin Meinhardt, thank you very much indeed. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Julian Barnes's first novel, Metroland, was published in 1980, and his 13th, The Only Story, comes out on February the 1st. He's also written essays, journalism, and more recently, memoirs. He was of the starry and successful Amos McEwen Rushdie generation, and often bracketed with them. For a while, the Barnes stereotype was as a writer of elegant, French-inflected novels, often about love and or infidelity, but he is much more than that. In 2005, his novel Arthur and George, about a real crime case investigated by Arthur Conan Doyle, signalled a change, and since then his work has been surprising, adventurous and always thoughtful. Ruth Skur, a contributing editor to the TLS, has reviewed the only story for us this week. Many thanks for joining us, Ruth. Hi, Lucy. Hi. Can you tell us um, a bit, to start off with, please, about the structure of the book and how it works? Because you mentioned in your piece that it, it, it's got quite an interesting relation to his memoir, Levels of Life. Yes, so in Levels of Life, which was a hybrid experimental book, part biography, part memoir, Barnes moved from the third person, talking about the history of ballooning, the actress Sarah Bernhardt's love affair, through to the first person section at the end, which was this searing account of his own grief at the loss of his wife, Pat Kavanagh, who died in 2008. And in that book, he he said that every love story is a potential grief story. So five years on, we have the new book, a new novel, which is a forensic examination of memory and the way it's eroded, lost over time. And there he's moving in the other direction. So we start in the first person with the character Paul remembering his love affair, age 19, the 48-year-old older married woman. And then we move into the second person in the second section where he's asking himself questions about the relationship. And finally, a third section where in the third person, the love affair is completely distant and remembered as though it was happening to someone else. But within the book, it's done quite gently. It's not like, here's the first part, this is me. Here's the second part, this is you. It slides a little bit in between. Absolutely. So it's beautifully constructed, um, beautifully written novel. And in the first part, you you get to the end of that. And the first person voice says, you know, this, I wish this was all that I remembered. But unfortunately, it's not the full story. And then you move into the second section in the second person. And then all the things that are disruptive of the of the first part start to come through. I mean, that's the technique that Barnes has used before, and the sense of an ending works in a in a similar way. How postmodern is this? Because it's obviously this is he's a very self conscious writer, Julian Barnes. He's aware of the form. I mean, sense of an ending is taking the title from a book by Frank Commode. He did the book 
a history of the world in ten and a half chapters, which is again, it, he's, and, he, and this, this shifting of person seems to me very conscious of the act of narration. Is this, does this feel very personal and story driven, or do you, do you get a sense of someone who sort of very much knows what he's doing, a bit postmodern? No, I think it's extremely subtle. He is a very cerebral writer. He cares about ideas. He cares about philosophy. But they're fully inhabited within the novel. The, the characters are believable. They're, they're enacting the, the plot. There isn't that sense of sort of literary criticism or philosophy bolted on yeah. to, to a narrative. The, the stories are, are, are engrossing through the characters, I would say. Yes, I don't. You don't. You don't get a sense of that he's at any point trying to be clever it's not or doing this. No, no, it's not arch. And I think some of his earlier stuff, you could possibly have said that it was. It was a bit more. There was a bit more of a raised eyebrow. But here, I don't think there are. It feels completely kind of emotionally committed. Well, he's always had these sensitive, slightly smug young men as he, in in his books. And um, the character Paul in this new novel is certainly in that long line. Um, but I think if you, when we kind of go back to Metroland, you can see there's definitely been a development in. But I mean, it's not writing the same book again or going over the same ground. It's familiar, but not in the way in which you know you you could say, well, you know, why 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 are we reading um, a rehash of, of of an old book? You're just in the same fictional universe. It's interesting that Lucy mentioned this idea of him being part of the Amos Rushdie, mm. who else is in it? Swift, McEwen. I suppose, is in it, McEwen. And Ishiguro as well. Because um, yeah. we're going to do a thing later in, in the year in the paper where we're looking at who people are re- genuinely excited to read now and whether that, yeah. that generation still exists. Do you think that in some ways he's the most successful of that generation in terms of well, still wanting to read his stuff? Because, you know, you know, Amos Rushdie, yeah. you, you slightly... I feel a bit of a chill when 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 their names are mentioned. So I think it's really interesting that um, obviously it made sense at one point to group him with them. These young, exciting male novelists. Um, but I think Barnes was always different. I, he he was a very very self-critical, quite sort of nervous start. I mean, he says that you know he it took him a long time to to write his first novel. Um, he wasn't wasn't sure there would ever be a second, etc. But I think now it makes much more sense to place him with Anita Bruckner, Penelope Fitzgerald, both writers mm. who he has really said he ad- he admires. And I see much more sense in in, in comparing the kind of fictional universe he's created to, to Anita Bruckner, actually. You sort of open an Anita Bruckner novel, sort of know what kind of character or, you know, what sorts of themes will recur. But it's always inflected, it's always different, it's always creative and, and surprising. And similarly with Penelope Fitzgerald, I mean, Barnes is someone who, as Lucy was saying at the beginning, I mean, sometimes he does historical subjects, yeah. he's very interested in biography, he's got a lot of overlap with with her and you feel that you know he yes he 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 is a very very skilled and um, and wonderful novelist that that's not actually all that he does so when he writes a novel he's choosing to put it into that form what what made his name was it was it flaubert's parrot or did he make it with metroland no i think it was flaubert's parrot wasn't it would you say ruth I mean, I think everyone has a sort of personal answer to that question. It's very important to me, Flaubert's Parrot. But I think, I mean, Metroland, I think, was 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 a sort of quiet success. He he apparently wrote this. Um, I don't know if he actually published it, but he wrote a very, the most negative review he could think of for Metroland, just to see if of other reviewers managed of his own book, oh just to see God. if other reviewers managed to to spot all the flaws that that he can spot. <laughs> Um, but yes, I, I'd, I'd say uh, that Flaubert's parrot for me certainly would be would be. And why uh, is that meaningful? Uh, why is that meaningful to you, Ruth? Because I remember I remember reading that book when I was about nineteen and being really, maybe even younger than that, mm. being really just impressed by the cleverness. It was just clearly written by a deeply clever person, and I remember thinking. Yeah, that. I thought that too. But I think for me, just the 
freedom to approach biography in yeah. that way, mm. to write a book about Flaubert that was so creative and, and so so light and, and yet so clever at the same time. I mean, the, the ability to, to bring all that cleverness into such a playful register that, that he has, I yeah. was very impressed by. And there was, there were, I can't think of anybody else who was doing anything similar. At, at the time, either it it, it 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 was a bit like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. You know, mm. it, was, it was like. A and is he very interested in biography? I mean, because you know, you link this to his own memoir. This has clearly got the notions of what memory can achieve, how recollection works, both um, for the individual and to the person the individual is speaking to. Um, mm. is, is in some ways his fiction an extended meditation on on biography and, and life writing and autobiography and, and those type of things. I think this particular novel is a meditation on memory and how, how memory works. There's this really striking scene that recurs. Um, the first time the the love interest, Susan, the older woman, is wearing a dress that when she sits on her sofa, the fabric is so similar to the sofa that she jokes, look, I'm, I'm disappearing. And it's one of their games. You know, it's a very playful, very loving scene. And then later in the novel, this comes back extremely darkly when you know this idea of her disappearing and you know through alcohol through addiction through through the sort of disintegration of the relationship she says look I'm disappearing again um and you you see the way in which he's looking at how memory shifts over time so even memories aren't stable um and it's it's a very bleak book from from that point of view yes i was i was going to say because it does it does have these themes as you say that that universe he's talking about suburbia and about young love and as you say one of the slightly smug young men and shocking the bourgeoisie but this one also it's very it's very dark because he says it's a novel about love but actually then it does as you say it does disintegrate and he yeah. he remembers it. He can't he can't not remember it. But there's some very um, it, there's there's a very there's a very strong portrait of things breaking. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, the sense of an ending is also a very very dark book. There, you know, the the think meditation on suicide and thinking about the relationship between history and memory. But this one does seem gentler to me for all of its its bleakness um there is something very loving at the at the heart of it i thought i don't know what you think about this ruth i'd like to ask you that despite it being really very there's a lot of sadness at the heart of it and you think a lot less of the protagonist i think by the end of the book that it was still a very romantic book with with a romantic outlook so I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, some of my memories um, from reading the book, it, it's almost like a, a parody of, of romance. You know, when he's talking about loving um, this woman's two front teeth because they're longer than the other teeth and mm. sort of tapping on them as though they're rabbit teeth and all these things, which kind of almost taking to an absurd extreme the things that, you know, attract one person to another. Um, and... Then I think, though, you know, underlying all of that, there is this deep humanity which is trying to explain how even when love dies or even when actually the memory of love dies, there is still the human life going on underneath it all. The final scene where he's, you know, thinking about filling the car up with petrol and just moving on through, through life... Although you could say, well, you know, everything's gone by that point, there is that sense that actually the main character is still alive. He's he's still going forwards. Mm. And what's the buzz about this this book? Is this the sort of thing that will be talked about bookery? Is it that sort of book? Do you think? It's impossible to predict Booker, no, I yeah. think, at the moment. Um, and I, I it slightly feels this has been thought... smuggled out a bit. This doesn't feel like a big, you know, in the way that a new Amos, a new Rushdie, would comes with its own often slightly fraudulent fanfare this doesn't seem quite characteristic of Barnes though he is quite he's shy he's publicity shy I mean you know it may be that he's he's just not prepared to to go on that sort of caravan of 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 promotion and things I mean my hope is that people won't think oh that's just another novel by Barnes and you know we, we we don't need to to read it because I think he really is someone who who develops in a very interesting and specific ways between these books and I think it's fascinating to, to see that. 
Well, it's a pretty good recommendation from you both, because you loved it as well, didn't you, Lucy? I did. I thought it was very, really moving and very strong. Lovely. Yeah. Well, Ruth Skirt, thank you so much for telling us all about it. Thank you. No, it'd be awkward if Ruth had hated it. <laughs> well, it would have been a different. Would have been a different conversation. You could have had a total row about it. But would you reckon? Is it, is it the sort of book you'd pl- you'd press into someone's it's hands? It's not a fun book, but it, I mean, it's not supposed to be a fun book. I don't mean that you wouldn't enjoy it, but do you know what I mean. It's it's quite it's pretty strong, in the middle. It looks as though it's going to be about love, and it sort of is, but that's by no means all of what it's about. Mm. Um, but I would no, I would recommend it, and I do think he's just. I think how many people are there? who are more prepared to experiment and move into sort of different areas and do different things the older they get. Who, I mean, I just think there's not that many artists necessarily. Particularly not novelists who potentially just find, I wonder a, if find, it, find a seam and, and just tap it. Exactly, and he really hasn't done that. Well, lovely stuff. Have a Nice Day is, on the face of it, a rather charming injunction to a complete stranger, a needless pause in a busy life selflessly to enjoy happiness on another person. Whenever in America I'm on the receiving end of such emotional largesse, I feel a minor prickle of gratitude and empathy. Yes, I shall have a nice day, I feel, now that I have your support to do so. According to Joyce Chaplin's review of American Niceness by Carrie Tarado Brahman, I'm merely being played as upon a stringed instrument. The idea of niceness, we learn, has moved from its English acquired implication of sweet earnestness to take on, in the United States, a manipulative edge. American history is littered with examples of the nice masking the nasty. Evil truly can be banal if niceness has become a characteristic affect in a nation built on Indian removal, enslavement, genocide and violent invasion of the lands of others. As Joyce Chaplin puts it, the friendliness is all performance. There is a malevolent emphasis on good cheer. Hence the self-congratulatory historical response to the plight of the Native Americans, who were lucky to be civilised, or the disgusting myth of slavery as white benevolence to an inferior black race. Chaplin concedes the argument that the continuing ooze of niceness through American culture is insidious, but poses this question. In anno uno horribili of the Trump administration, if Americans are losing their niceness, what on earth is left to them? Well, to answer that and much else, Joyce Chaplin joins Lucy and me on the line now. Welcome to you, Joyce. Thank you so much. No, great. Um, I'm sorry to have revealed that Americans have been playing you for years. <laughs> Listen, I'm a, a nice I'm a bit devastated by this because I, I honestly did think, and I was talking to, a, to someone from Minnesota the other day, and I said, oh, Minnesota nice, that's a thing. And he said, no, it's an ironic term. It's not It's not real. It's, 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 it's a sort of term masking deep insecurity. So is that really true? Do you, do you feel that as a basic premise, the... The, the, the surface goodwill is, is masking something. It is interesting that it does seem different if you're inside the culture, where you, as an adult, begin to realize the layers um, yeah. of meaning within the nice behavior that means something but not everything and can conceal all the nasty stuff uh, that comprises a lot of American history. I think for outsiders, and I wonder for children, uh, how they figure out that this is a much more complicated set of behaviours than it might initially seem to be. But what's interesting, I, I, I found by your piece, is that you can connect this misleading niceness to the big tragedies of the American experience. So Native Americans who uh, are being you know, killed and, and, and abused or, or, or the existence of slavery. Do you really think there is something that connects those things to this, this superficial feeling of, of, of niceness? Clearly, there are moments when there's nothing nice about it, and no one is pretending anything. Uh, it is a secondary uh, effort, uh, cultural work of explaining, well, what just happened there, where yeah. it, there's this bizarre insistence on people's character as whether they're nice or not that somehow has to come into play uh, to explain certain things to explain other things away and that's the bizarre nature of uh, what the author described uh, in American culture that niceness comes into all kinds of extremely dirty work uh, that has constructed the nation. I wonder actually is that I mean does the British you don't really get that with the British because the British of course has spent its history being 
awful to other peoples, and you know the British Empire isn't right. explained away as niceness. It's explained away as is it sort of civilization? Is it slightly different? But yes, I think we're a bit more patronising about it, are we? That we we say, well, it was it was for your own good, kind of thing. That yeah, we have a civilising. Mission, but, but, but we don't pretend to be nice about it. But you're saying that that's kind of what's going on a bit here as well, isn't it? That there's this sort of fake benevolence of slavery, for example. As a historian, I think there's an interesting question that the book doesn't quite answer about, well, when did this cultural explanation come into play? You can find versions of it early, but it does seem to me to be a much more intense activity in the 19th and now the 20th centuries. So that's something where the American nature of niceness seems to be a more recent history. Um, in comparison with what the British did and what other nations did in terms of imperialism especially, probably there's not going to be a lot of value in ranking <laughs> <laughs> whether you're nice about it um, or whether you're decent about it. Um, there, are, there are different ways in which empires explain themselves and people involved in that in that. Uh, violent work uh, nevertheless insists that they're good people. Uh, I think that that kind of effort is itself what we need to question, whatever label is put on it. Uh, where does God and Jesus, where do God and Jesus fit into this world of American niceness? What's the role of, of religion here, do you feel? A lot of manifestations of uh, Christianity emphasize a judgmental God and uh, a Christ that is withheld from a lot of people. The salvation he offers is not university, uh, universally available. The nice Jesus uh, that <laughs> appears in uh, a lot of American 19th century Protestant denominations uh, is universally offered to everybody. Um, he's the nice guy. Uh, who died for everyone, um, and uh, whose life is a series of kindly gestures. And there's a way in which it's making religion more palatable, um, less tough, and again, more universally acceptable. But I think a lot of earlier Christians or people in denominations that emphasize the, the harder edge of Christianity would have pointed out that this is disappointing, theologically soft, but nevertheless it remains a feature of American Protestantism especially, that uh, this is supposed to be a kindly religion where everyone is welcome and Jesus loves you all. I wonder, um, Joyce, as well as with with the idea about the, that you should be nice all the time, I wonder if there there is also an element of um, I'm I'm thinking about we've got an illustration to the piece which is a big billboard which I think is in North Dakota, and it's got a picture of John Oliver and it says Hey John Oliver, don't be angry, be North Dakota nice. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's that idea of it's not nice to be angry and mad about injustices, but if you're uh, um, but sometimes if you feel that, that there is an injustice, that's what you have to do. You can't. It's difficult to protest uh, and be nice about things. Sure, and that's part of the coercive work of the demands that yeah. you be nice, is it is undermining actual critical dissent and uh, protest and desire to have things change in society and, again, to stand up for tougher ideas like justice um, and to protest injustice, uh, being nice, maybe the last thing uh, that is going to actually have any effect on changing what is wrong uh, in the United States. So yes, it's a coercive demand to be quiet, don't complain. And the book is very effective about pointing out the psychic damage that does to people who have a real grievance and uh, can see that their place or somebody else's place in American society is compromised and yet are being browbeaten um, about being uh, pleasant and uh, smiling away whatever the real problems are. Is it ending in the 21st century, do, do you feel? that This is a, a mm. very good payoff of, of, of your piece. Is it happening? Is that a bad thing? Are we seeing the end of American niceness before our eyes now? Too soon to tell. I mean, it would, in some sense be positive if it went away and if we were to have a more frank set of public debates about what might be wrong with the, uh, the United States and not being nice about it. Do you think Trump does that, Joy? I was, I was just thinking well, that he's, in some ways he strips away 
The reason why he's, he's sort of so unintelligible to us is he strips away a lot of the conventions, the conventions of telling the truth sometimes, the conventions of caring in some senses about the effects of not telling the truth. And in, right. in some ways, that is stripping away some of the falsities of, of, of ordinary human interaction. Yes, exactly. And uh, we are seeing what happens with public debate when no one's nice about it or the niceness is really not getting a lot of the traction that it might have in an earlier historical era. I would say at the moment, it does not feel good, right? (laughs) Um, That nothing is resolved, everything is up in the air, and the niceness has vanished. It's too soon to tell, as I just said, whether the trade-off is going to be adequate. I mean, I I am not a supporter of the, the fake accomplishments of niceness. It achieves nothing. It marks no real effort um, or character, uh, but it is amazing to see it gone, uh, and yet reforms that really might come out of a franker public debate, are they're not there yet. But we, we, we might see something different in two to three, yeah. to, to three years. Do you think this type of cultural history is a good way, or is it too cute a way of considering a, a nation? Do you think this is a good prism through which to look at America? No, I think cultural criticism is very, very effective. And uh, I, I really do think that anyone reading the book would think, ah, right, uh, why am I doing that? Why am I taken in by that? Uh, what is being accomplished? I mean, it's not prescriptive. This is the thing about writing a history. You're describing what happened in the past that might still affect the present. But there aren't a series of, uh, there aren't lists of what to do next. Um, And how you strip out something that is so packed and intertwined culturally with a lot of different behaviors and beliefs, how do you get rid of that? I I I I do think the Trump era is interesting in terms of it vanishing, um, but it's still residually there every once in a while. Um, People make claims about it. So the whole debate about dreamers and DACA, for instance, it's still inflected with these sentimental demands that people be nice to young people. Um, And, yeah, that's a good goal, but that's not what the whole issue is about. So it's tough to see, um, well, how is this actually going to be washed away? What damage is going to result in the meantime? And then what might be achieved? But this is quite a shocking thing, because I, I, I genuinely, it sort of brought me up, up abruptly when I read your piece, not having read the book, this notion that niceness is not broadly a positive thing. I mean, is, th- is this a controversial thesis, do you think, in the end? I do think that you can probably find Americans who are nice. I don't want to say that it is universally always a false goal. I think there are people who probably had that behavior without the manipulative edge. It is possible, and maybe that could survive as a real impetus um, for moral behavior, for personal conduct. Um, I I do think that a lot of the, the stylized, very harsh, aggressive niceness, for instance, that you see on Twitter where people talk to each other using words that are supposed to indicate niceness, but you know darn well that's not what the main message of, of, the, yeah. of the tweet or the interaction Virtue is. Virtue signaling, um, that sort of thing as well. Yeah. So you're, so you're not uniform... So sh- sh- we're going to end this now, Joyce. Are you optimistic <laughs> or not? Is it, you seem like a very nice person, though. So I, <laughs> I, 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 Thank you, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, notes of optimism or notes of pessimism or too early to tell. I would say too early to tell. Okay, that's lovely to hear. Sorry, (laughs) I wish I had a nicer message. That's that's what I'm going with at the moment. Joyce Chaplin, thank you very much indeed. Look, I actually feel when I go to America and someone says, have a nice day, I don't care it doesn't, they don't mean it. It's just nice. It's nice. I think if somebody says it to you in a shop, that's different to to you being forced to keep quiet about something or yeah, yeah. pretend that but you're not in the, pain the two... or hardship because it, th- th- that's, that's, that's a kind of gift if someone says, have a nice day. They don't, you yeah. know, they don't need anything from you. That's fine. Yeah. But if someone says, come on, steak, be nice, if you are causing a rumpus because of something that's wrong yeah. and it's used like that, then that's a completely different ballgame. And, and but are the two connected? That seemed, that, that's what mm. seems so interesting about this piece, that the, the, the cultural imperative that wish someone to have a nice day is connected to the passive-aggressive domination of a, another race. It's very interesting because I remember when I lived in Paris 
And the Parisians oh, don't, as a whole, no. go in for nice. They don't want you to have a nice day. Yes, but uh, and, and at the beginning... And they so, don't, Lucy. I've, the... I've, I've felt that in Paris. They don't want me to have a nice day. Some of the <laughs> English people would be a bit, oh, you know, you'd be brought up a bit short, but the Americans sometimes were horrified. Yeah. But it takes a while to realise that they don't, they're not, they don't just say empty stuff. They just don't say it. So if you yeah. ask for something and they haven't got it, they'll just say no. Yeah. And that's not just Paris. There's lots of, I think, a lot of the Scandinavian countries are a lot more f- straightforward in that. Yeah. Whereas we would go, oh, no, I'm terribly sorry. Yeah, we, Why don't you try well, we apologise to everything. I mean, yeah. uh, we would say sorry, so and Americans, w- I don't know, would, would, would be would, nice. Yeah, and, and try and empathise. Maybe, yeah. Um, whereas the French, and I think also to a certain extent, I'm generalising yeah. wildly, yeah, there are okay. lots of other countries where they'll just say no. And then their elaboration is, I haven't got it. And, and yet, in, af- in a way, that's quite good. And yet, if I had to pick a country in which to go into a shop and ask for something they didn't have, <laughs> I would pick America above France every single day. Because not only in it Paris... Depends, it depends what you want. If you need baked goods, yeah. go to France. Yeah. <laughs> but not only do they not have something, they look at you like you're, you're, you're an idiot for even daring to ask it. Well, in my experience, maybe that's because I'm an idiot. No, no. Um, That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Joyce Chaplin, Maren Meinhardt and Ruth Skur. My thanks go to Disney's very own Lucy Dallas. Thank you, Lucy. They're welcome. Or just Lucy Dallas is fine. I could just do that, couldn't I? You could. I could, but I'm not going to. Uh, do go to the-tls.co.uk or to your local provider of high-end journalism for this week's paper, which includes Modigliani... Thea's not here to pronounce that. You don't pronounce the G, I believe. Is that right? How would you say Modigliani. Modigliani. Children's poetry and the entire history of European literature. Yep. Next week, the paper is such a joyous hodgepodge of varied delight, God only knows what we all choose to talk about. The anti-Semitism of Celine, the personality of Charlotte Bronte, the South African gold rush, there is only one way to find out. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.